Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Today we have a figure well-known to First Things readers. He's uh, been a regular contributor, one of the most prolific ones on our website and in the magazine for several years now, Peter Lightheart. Peter is president of the Theopolis Institute, a Christian Studies Center and Leadership Training Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. He's the author of numerous books. They include The End of Protestantism, Deep Exegesis, Delivered from the Elements of the World, and Written Commentaries on First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and Revelation. Today we have a little book that's just come out called The Ten Commandments, A Guide to the Perfect Law of Liberty. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you. All right. Well, we can we can just uh, jump right in now. I, I've got a problem with the subtitle, Peter. What? Wait, wait a minute. What do, what do you mean? How can a bunch of statements that begin "Thou shalt not" be an expression of liberty? Yeah, I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a a common question from uh, <laughs> even from Christians. It's certainly a common question from secularists that uh, you got these negative statements that uh, are supposed to be a declaration of freedom. But that's that's the way the ten words are presented in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the the introduction, Yahweh introduces himself to Israel as the God who liberated them from Egypt. He's teaching them how to live now that they have been freed from slavery. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it's presented as a law of liberty. And I think if you, you can think about this in a couple of different ways. Um, you think about what's prohibited in the Ten Words, murder and theft. Uh, if those are not prohibited, if you have a, if you have a society or a group where uh, murder is freely you can you can freely murder without consequence or no one has uh, any kind of rights to their own property then uh, people live in fear they don't live in freedom right and so there have to be there have to be these negatives in order to establish a, any kind of any kind of order so the, the kinds of behavior that the ten words are prohibiting are the kinds of behavior that inhibit freedom that inhibit people from being able to live their lives free from fear of theft free from fear for their lives and so on and another thing that I found as I studied the text of the Ten Words over about a year while I was working on the book, um, you have, um, I think, a dozen negatives within within the text of the Ten Commandments. But there are two commandments that are positive commandments right. that uh, are stated as do this. And those are the two at the center of the, uh, the Ten Words, the Sabbath command, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and then honor your father and mother. Yeah. And I think one of the ways to read the Ten Words is to see these negative commandments as uh, you think about it as the kind of classic understanding of what a sculptor is do, doing when he's confronted by a piece of marble. He's trying to remove those things that are keeping the image that he's depicting mm-hmm. from emerging from the marble. So he's actually, you're trying to cut off the behavior. Uh, and what you want in a group or in, a, in a, a, a good life is a life of celebration, Sabbath keeping, rest giving, and respect and honor among generations. That's the positive vision that emerges. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the midst of the negatives, you have this positive vision of life. But I think even the negatives have a, have a, have, have, a uh, have a positive role in the sense that they're preventing behaviors that inhibit freedom. So those, those, those thou shalt not, nots are essential. Without those, you have just a, a shapeless, uh, shapeless social life, shapeless group life that is unlivable for human beings. <laughs> and you don't like the word... Well, you prefer the word ten words to ten commandments. Why is that? Right. I've had to discipline myself to, to use that phrase. Uh, it's it's a small thing, but I, I think it, it's uh, the, the way we describe things is important. So making small changes can can be illuminating. Uh, the main reason, the kind of 
fundamentalist Bible thumping reason is that the the collection of commandments that we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are called the ten words in the Old Testament. That's the phrase that's used. Mm -hmm. There are other words uh, for commandment or statute or ordinances, but the word that's used in uh, when it describes the ten words is the word simply for word. And I think one one of the things that that highlights is the fact that the what we think of as the Ten Commandments are not all imperatives. There are uh, negative imperatives, there are a couple of positive imperatives, but then there's a lot of other information or exhortation or other uh, promises, there are threats. Mm-hmm. There are other things within the text of the Ten Commandments other than the commandments. And so trying to discipline myself to t- say ten words is a way of highlighting that fact. Mm-hmm. It begins, the Ten the ten. Ten Commandments begin with uh, Yahweh introducing himself as a God who delivered them from Egypt. That's important for understanding the whole, uh, the whole of the text. But it's it's not a commandment, and so we don't want to we don't want to miss the fact that there's a very various uses of language within the text. I you know I hadn't thought of that before. the The context for all of these Ten Commandments is the recent deliverance. You, you, slaves don't need. You know, the, the slaves have no law of liberty. They don't need the, 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 you know, commandments. They simply follow what the master tells them. Right. Huh. Yeah, huh. I, I think that's right. This, uh, that's one of the reasons for the subtitle. Uh, the, the perfect law of liberty is a phrase that comes from uh, the letter uh, of James in the New Testament. So it's a biblical phrase. But uh, we decided to use that for the subtitle because of the context of the ten words uh, that they they're given after Israel has been delivered from Egypt. Now, that that set, sets up another important aspect of the book. The uh, one of the one of the strange grammatical features of the ten words in both Exodus and Deuteronomy is that they're uh, they're grammatically uh, uh, stated as if they were being uh, uh, spoken to a single a single human being. Mm-hmm. The the King James version is "Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that." And that thou shalt is in the in the uh, King James English is a is a singular second person, mm-hmm. and that's the that reflects the Hebrew. These are all stated in terms of as if as if the Lord were speaking to an individual, when in fact he's speaking from Sinai to uh, according to the Bible, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, but I think that highlights something about what uh, that highlights something about the theology of the ten words. Uh, God is speaking to Israel as if Israel were a single man. And I think the theology behind that goes back again earlier in Exodus, where the Lord uh, confronts Pharaoh, uh, and his charge against Pharaoh is that Pharaoh has enslaved his son, Yahweh's son. Uh, uh, Israel doesn't belong to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't have any right to enslave them. And so the Lord comes and says, uh, you've uh, enslaved my son, let my son go free. If you don't let my son go free, then I'll take your son, which is what happens at Passover. And then having liberated his son, Israel, the Lord brings him to Sinai, and then he gives him this in, these instructions. And you can think about this as not just as a uh, the Lord and his people, but as a kind of father-son talk. Uh, the Lord is speaking to his son. He wants his son to grow up and live in freedom himself, and this is the path of freedom and the path of maturity. You say early on, the ten words are a character portrait of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, you mean this is more than a description, right? That Jesus was just obedient to, correspondent to the ten words. He, he was much more, he was the fulfillment of them, yes? Right. I think I do mean both. I do mean that Jesus uh, keeps the ten words, yes. and that's one of the things, I, that's one of the things I, I try to bring out in the book. 
um, partly as a way to address uh, um, a, a, some sometimes a, a Christian confusion about the relationship between the Ten Words and the Old Testament commandments and what is required in the New. And I don't think the Bible allows us to say, well, we had commandments in the Old Testament, we just followed Jesus in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're disciples of Jesus. Uh, I think the way that the way that the ten words work within the whole context of the Bible is that they are kind of a preview of of the character and life of Jesus. So, following Jesus will actually be a life of obedience to the ten words. So, uh, but with a twist, and this is where the fulfillment part comes in. Uh, you take, for example, the uh, uh, the Sabbath command is a is a uh, is kind of a, a classic one where it looks like Jesus is just flouting the ten the uh, Sabbath command. He, he seems to ignore it and violate it. Mm-hmm. And he gets in trouble constantly because he seems to be doing things that are not supposed to be done on the Sabbath. That's right. You know, as, as Christians, we, we have to insist he, he must be keeping the Sabbath somehow because he's the sinless son of God. He can't be disobeying his father. But what, what we're seeing in the Gospels, I think, is Jesus actually fulfilling the Sabbath command, but fulfilling it in this surprising way uh, that actually is consistent with the original statement of the, the Sabbath command, the statement of the Sabbath command is not just to take rest, but it says, uh, you shall not you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, even your cattle are supposed to get rest on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is not just a command to take rest for yourself, but it's a, it's a command to give rest and to hmm. give relief. And hmm. that's what Jesus is bringing out in his Sabbath practice, that aspect of Sabbath keeping. So he's keeping the commandment even in its strict sense, but he's bringing it to fulfillment and and, and richer life by showing that uh, keeping Sabbath is actually not just about uh, keeping one day in seven, but it's about a whole way of life that in, is gener- uh, includes generosity, uh, service to the weak, uh, relieving the sick. Those kinds of things are all mm-hmm. embraced within the Sabbath command. You you actually say that Jesus's two commandments: love God, love your neighbor correspond, the first one corresponds pretty well, sums up the first five commandments. His second commandment sums up the the, the second five commandments, yes? Yes, but the idea that the ten words are um, an elaboration, or that Jesus is summarizing the ten words in his two great commandments, that's, that's a very traditional idea. It goes back to the earliest Christian commentary, and probably earlier than Christian commentary on the ten, can, ten, can, ten commandments. They recognize that there's a command to that the early commandments have to do with our relationship with God, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is uh, Jesus' first great commandment. That's uh, he's quoting Deuteronomy there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not a it's not something that he invents. Uh, the second commandment, the second great commandment, is love your neighbor as yourself. That's also an Old Testament commandment from uh, Leviticus, and that is a kind of summary of the of the second part of the Decalogue. So that idea that the Jesus two commandments match up roughly with two parts of the Decalogue is mm-hmm. is a pretty common one. Mm-hmm. The thing that I, I argue somewhat somewhat differently than a lot of uh, a lot of commentary on the on the ten words uh, that the the ten commandments are split up in split in half a five and five literary structure rather than uh, uh, frequently you see the the first table of the law is the first three commandments of the first four commandments. And then the second table of the law begins with the commandment to honor your father and mother. Those have to do with uh, obedience to neighbor or, or love for neighbor. And the previous three or four commandments have to do with love of God. Mm-hmm. But I think literarily, when you look at the, the way the commandments are stated, uh, the first five commandments are all 
similar in literary structure and form. Mm -hmm. Each one of them names Yahweh's name. Uh, Each one of them has some kind of reason for keeping the commandment attached to it. It's not just a bare commandment. Uh, They're they're quite long. Each one of them is um, it's not just a uh, not just a thou shalt not, but it it has a it elaborates on the commandment. And then in the second five commandments, you have you have the name the name the Lord's name is not used at all in the second five commandments. They're all very short. There are no explanations uh, of why you should keep those commandments. And so you're just looking at the text; you, it splits up into a five and five mm-hmm. pattern. And and I th- I do think that the first five commandments, which would then include the uh, commandment to honor your father and mother. Uh, those first five commandments come under the rubric of love of God, and then the second five commandments come under the rubric of the love of neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that it opens up some interesting ways of thinking about, especially the what I count as the fifth commandment. That's uh, connected, more connected in the way I'm reading the structure of the Ten Words, more connected with uh, idolatry and uh, obedience to God and love of God than it is with love mm-hmm. of neighbor. You, you, uh, honoring those authorities is is integrally related to honoring God Himself. You, you say the sequence of commandments isn't arbitrary. Now, why can't covet, do not covet, go at number six? Why does that have to be number ten? I'm not sure I can answer that that particular <laughs> question. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I see the logic of all of the connections. Yeah. The kinds of things I was looking at though were um, the right in the, especially in the middle of the Ten Commandments. I, I think that there is a there is a uh, there is a sequence. At least that there, the commandments that are juxtaposed to each other are are linked uh, conceptually and substantively. So um, the Sabbath command is, uh, as I said, not only a command to take rest but to give rest. The next commandment is honor your father and mother, and there are places in the Old Testament where those two commandments are linked together um, and treated almost as if they were two sides of the same two sides of the same commandment. Leviticus 19 is one place where you have those two commandments side by not just side by side, but included in a, in a, in a structure where they're treated as one thing. So that makes me think, well, how, how is Sabbath keeping related to honoring parents? And I, I think we think of the, the commandment to honor parents in terms of Jesus' commandment to uh, care for our aging parents. Uh, Jesus thinks this is a, a direct implication of the, of the commandment to honor parents. And he rebukes the Pharisees for not doing that. If you think of uh, the uh, honoring parents in, in those terms, uh, children taking care of their parents, then it does come under the it comes under the general uh, the general uh, a general rubric of Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath keeping is giving rest, giving relief. One of the ways we give relief and rest is by uh, showing honor to our parents and showing gratitude to them by caring for them in their old age. Mm-hmm. So uh, that would be one example of how uh, the two commandments are linked up. Uh, I'm, some other scholars have pointed out to, pointed to linkages between the, the commandment on your father and mother and the commandment against killing. That's in my counting. It's the fifth and sixth commandments, and how the breakdown of family life uh, is conducive to uh, conducive to violence, and, mm-hmm. and particularly uh, highlighting the the issue of abortion in that context and how that that violence as it inserted itself in the family life. Mm-hmm. So there would be, a, a again, a linkage between those two commandments that, uh, as they're juxtaposed. So those are the things I was looking at. I, uh, I wish I could say I figured out the <laughs> sequence uh, and how, why everything is in the place that it's in, but I'm, I can't pretend that I've done that. <laughs> okay. Well, if, if we get to the first commandment, you quote Luther saying, everything proceeds from the power 
of the first commandment. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, Luther, of course, um, for Luther, um, the, the gospel is about uh, the gift of God that we receive by faith. It's about justification by faith. And for, for Luther, Luther's has that in mind when he makes that statement about the first word, that uh, uh, one of the reasons why he insists that justification has to be by faith is because we honor God above all, and we don't, we don't attempt to share that honor with him. So we, uh, our salvation is entirely of God. It's not some combination of God and our own contribution. So um, faith, he says, is actually a way of obeying the first commandment. When we put our trust in God to save us, then we are uh, loving him above all things. Uh, we have no other gods before him when we, when we have faith. So th- that's the linkage that he's making. And then he, he says something like, I don't know if I quote this part of it, but he says something like, once you, once you have the first, first commandment down, once you have faith, which is an obedience to the first commandment, then all the other commandments come very easily, <laughs> which uh, I, I wouldn't say that I, I, my, my life has confirmed that, but maybe I don't have the first commandment down. Maybe that's the issue. But he's, yeah, he's, he's highlighting the role of faith. That's well, why he, that's and, why he and, that, that. Yeah. and that trust and faith that you mentioned does not produce a, a calm, withdrawn, contemplative existence. You call it a militant command that makes us, as you say, quote, subversives. Uh, I was um, particularly struck by an essay by David, David Bentley Hart on the, on the uh, first commandment, where that's the kind of language he uses about uh, the, uh, the first word, that in, in the context of the uh, first century, when the church is first beginning to expand out of Judaism and it confronts this polytheistic world, first commandment is a declaration of war. It's a statement that there is only one God. Whatever other powers there may be in the world, there is only one that deserves worship. There's only one that deserves our whole devotion. Uh, and uh, so there's not there's a there's a, a you know, there's a kind of throwing down the gauntlet yeah. by saying for us there is but one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there's also you can think about this in terms of the typology of the conquest of Canaan. There Israel is given a promised land, and the Lord sends Joshua in to lead the troops of Israel in conquering the land of promise, the land that was promised to Abraham. The new covenant is, we have another Joshua, Jesus, who has given us another commission. Here, our commission is not uh, a commission that's carried out by the sword, but it's carried out by the proclamation of the gospel. But the land is, the whole, and the land is expanded to the whole world. But the, in some ways, the, the commission is the same, to proclaim the gospel so that all the idols are cast down, and uh, the world is uh, the world is devoted to the honor and praise of the one living God. There's a kind of mission implication, a mission statement that's implied in the first word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's throwing down the gauntlet. We believe and 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 serve just the one God over against all the gods that the world would want us to obey. And um, our Lord is not going to rest until uh, every knee bows to Jesus and every every tongue confesses that He's the Lord. And that means uh, he's not going to rest until all of the all of the idols are are thrown down and all of the idols are prostrate before him. Uh, uh, Caesar isn't going to like that, Peter. Yes, I, I realize <laughs> that. That's that's the subversive part, isn't it? <laughs> there we go. There uh, we go. Now, uh, when when we get to the the second commandment, you you say you know idols and, and and images. You say that idolatry dehumanizes us because quote it substitutes senseless wood or stone or metal for living. Images. Now, my question is, what what makes an image living? H- how do we tell the difference between the, the 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 false idol and the living image? 
Yeah, what I, what I have in mind there is uh, the creation account in Genesis one and two, where God creates his God, God creates his own image. You 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 make you make something important about God naming Himself. Yeah, uh, in the context of the third commandment, that God is God is the one who gives Himself a name, who reveals His name. Um, there's there's an, in some ways there's an analogy between human beings and God at that point because if you see somebody, um, you're meeting them for the first time you don't have an identifier for them, and so they have to disclose their name to you. So there's a kind of analogy. But we all we all function with names that are given to us, that are, you know, before we have any uh, opportunity to choose our own name, our parents have given us names, and that becomes the identifying mark that we have. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a there's a disanalogy there, too. But when, when God, creates, God creates his image, he gives, the, the living image is, I'm talking about human beings. Uh, Genesis 1 talks about, human beings created in general, and then Genesis 2 gives us the, the intimate picture of God forming Adam from the dust of the ground and then breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Right. And that's the living image that I'm referring to in that section about the, the second word. And I think what the, the contrast that I'm calling attention to is would be this. Um, if you look at passages about idolatry in the Old Testament, you find that people bow down to images of their false gods. Uh, people kiss the images of their false gods. People serve and do do certain kinds of uh, uh, homage to images of false gods. And when you look at what Israel is called to do, Israel is called to do all those things not in in, in connection with um, manufactured images, but in connection with human be, human beings, uh, God manufactured images, the images that God made. So um, Paul says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." That's a kind of homage that we're supposed to pay to one another. Uh, in other places in the Bible, kissing is a is an act of uh, is an act of worship, uh, but we're paying homage not to a, not to a dead image, but to a living image, another human being. Um, in in the Bible, you uh, I think Israel is prohibited from bowing down to graven images, but people bow down to other people all the time. Abraham bows down low before uh, the princes of the land that he meets, uh, and other people prostrate themselves before other human beings. So, um, so against that background, what we find in Scripture is that uh, the, the kinds of homage that pagans and idolaters would pay to their, deal, their, their metal or wood or stone images, human beings, uh, Jews, Israelites, are paying toward other human beings. And so when we transfer that homage that we're supposed to pay to our brothers and sisters, when we transfer that to a, an image of stone or an image of wood, that's the de- dehumanizing Part of it, we're being estranged, as it were, from ourselves. Uh, we're not just we're not just uh, robbing God of His glory, but in some sense, we're depriving ourselves of our own glory. We're the ones that are supposed to share in the glory of God. We're the supposed uh, as as the images of God. We're the ones that are supposed to be um, uh, venerated and respected. Uh, and when we turn that respect and honor to uh, and uh, an image that we've manufactured, uh, we're robbing ourselves of that status, as it were. That, that leads me to jump to, to number eight, uh, Thou shalt not steal. You say that if we really wish to understand the eighth word, we must recognize the connection between property and person. We're not just talking about objects here. We're talking about people. Yeah, there's partly against the background of the, the structure of the ten words that I talked about before, um, the five plus five uh, division. The, the eighth word obviously comes in the second half of the Decalogue, and uh, I'm, I, the way I the way I read the Decalogue, um, 
uh, you could you could use Jesus' two great commandments to divide it up, or you could say the first five commandments are uh, about uh, honor honor to God, and the second five commandments are about honor to the image of God. Mm. And in each case, you have the first commandment of each group is kind of the the kind of the title for the whole group. So, Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the theme of the first five commandments. And thou shalt not kill is in some way the, the that's the title and theme of the rest of the commandments. I, I think there are other, obviously other ways to read the ten boards, but I found that illuminating. And trying to think about how each of the second half of the Decalogue is some kind of manifestation of uh, of murder, mm-hmm. uh, an attack on God's image. Obviously, uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is an assault on the image of God that's embodied in marriage. Uh, which we know from Paul and other parts of the Bible that uh, marriage exists as uh, a uh, as a living sacrament, as it were, a living uh, image of uh, the relationship between Christ and His Church. So that's the background for talking about the Eighth Commandment as uh, and thinking about the Eighth Commandment in terms of the relationship of person and property. And I think um, but, so. So theft is a kind of murder. Uh, theft is not just an assault on a person's things. But it's an assault on the person, uh, and anybody who's suffered a theft knows that experience. Oh, it's personal. When I was, <laughs> it, very much so, right? When I was growing up, my my parents' home was robbed a couple of times. One one time when when we were all home, a couple of uh, thieves just walked in with stockings over their faces, really? and uh, it was it was a terrifying moment, and stayed with me. And I I still have a very vivid image in my mind of seeing uh, getting a glimpse of one of the guys coming around the corner. Of the kitchen door, and um, uh, but that that's a that feel, that's a personal violation. Yeah. Uh, and we we try to reassure ourselves and say, well, you know, if somebody steals our computer, we say, well, it's just a computer, it's just a thing. No. But we really we really feel it personally because there is this connection between the person and the property. Yeah. And I think ultimately that goes goes to the fact that we are made in the image of God, who is uh, the owner and he's the Lord of everything that he's made. God. Uh, claims certain things as his own. The, the whole language of holiness in the Old Testament is all about God's property. Holy places are places that God has claimed as his own, and holy things are things that God says are my things. Yeah. And it's a pretty serious offense to take God's things and to use them for your own purposes. And I think there's a there's an analogy between God's ownership of his holy things and human beings have a, a, a kind of kind of sacred relationship with their property. Yeah. Um, so I think that, and I think that's important for seeing the the depth of of uh, the the eighth commandment, the commandment against theft. It does have this personal dimension to it. It's not just about yeah. uh, the loss of things or uh, or uh, crimes against property. It's, it is really is crimes against people. Yeah. We're 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 getting close to the end. So let me ask one more question. This jumps to commandment number nine. You bring up an interesting point about false witness. And you, you call it, it's an allowance of evil. And it, it's not necessarily a perpetration of evil. It's not always an active, aggressive gesture. You actually say that often it's a result of cowardice. You actually say, you use the word cowards, and that we are cowards often uh, relative to the truth. Why is that? Why do I say that or why are we cowards? I think um, why are we cowards is the... The mystery of human sin, mm-hmm. and our um, we are uh, people of the lie, and uh, we we need to be uh, delivered from lies in order to 
be servants of the truth. And that's, that's a, um, uh, that's a difficult thing. I think there's all kinds of, you know, psychological and social, social psychological dynamics that go into that. It's very, very difficult to stand up for the truth in the context where everyone else is believing a lie. Okay. Now that, that yeah. can be a, that can be a, a kind of, uh, invigorating crisis moment. Uh, if the if the truth is spoken in a context where everyone believes a lie, but it's also very difficult to do. It's powerful. The powerful pressures, but uh, but on on that commandment, I think the uh, I was I do think the commandment applies to speech in general and uh, uh, truthful speech in general. But the specific commandment has to do with truthful speech in the court in the context of a courtroom. Yeah. Uh, the, the word witness there should be should be understood in our term of witness. But even that, you think about how easy it is to try to um, skip out of um, serving as a witness. I don't right. want to get involved. Yeah, there are um, stakes, you know. know. It's, it, right, there are stakes, and it, I, I, it's not my business. Yeah. Um, in, in ancient Israel, it was neighbor's business to witness. You know, it, it was a kind of self-policing community, and uh, if you knew something that, was, that had been done wrong, you were required to bear witness to it. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, you need to, that requires the courage to stand up against various kinds of pressures in order to speak and uh, hold to the truth. All right. The book is The Ten Commandments, A Guide to the Perfect Law of Liberty. There's much more that we didn't get into, uh, Peter, but thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been great to be with you.